This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I'm sitting here and I'm talking to Clint Campbell. And Clint, why don't you go ahead and... Tell the folks who you are and what what you're about. Well, who I am and what I'm about. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a, could be a loaded question, man. Uh, first, man, I appreciate you having me on the show. I always kind of dig being on the other side of the microphone here, so that kind of leads me into I run the Truth from the Sand Deer Hunting Podcast. Uh, it's been in existence for it'll be five years, I think, in June, which is kind of crazy to even say. But you know, really, it started off as a as a way for me to you know, meet some hunters from different places. Cause I'd moved back to Pennsylvania from, from Florida. And it was, you know, I live close to Philadelphia working, you know, um, you know, a, a white collar job, if you will. Um, not a lot of folks hunt in the space that I work in. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to meet hunters. And so I kind of started the truth from the stand podcast to learn more about hunting and meet people who were into the same things that I was into. Um, really had no intention of it lasting more than maybe six months to a year <laughs> just just to kind of get my kicks um you know and then five years later you know here i am still kind of kind of rolling along so over that time it's adapted really you know early on um you know it was really kind of learning and understanding maybe a little bit better how to 
I don't want to say pattern deer, but really understand. And I'm always trying to understand deer behavior overall, but I hunted a lot of private property back then because we owned a lot of family ground and it was roughly about three hours, three and a half hours from where I live now. Um, and so a lot of it was focused on that and I like building and making stuff. And so it gave me the opportunity to do some like habitat management, food plotting and stuff like that and try to see how I could manipulate the landscape to manipulate the deer to do what I wanted them, not do what I wanted them to do, but to increase my odds at certain locations and stuff like that. Um, and so I got to do some of that stuff, which was really cool. Um, cause I like, like I said, I like to make stuff with my hands, I like to get my hands in the dirt. And then there was a couple of different hunts and we can get into that, but there was a particular hunt for a particular deer, um, that kind of changed that for me. And so it was probably four, probably four years ago, roughly, you know, I kind of pivoted to all public land and it wasn't anything like, Oh, I'm going to be this public land hunter. It was more <laughs> of, I lived in around Philadelphia and our family properties were back towards Pittsburgh. And I just, if I wanted to hunt more often, I needed to explore the ground that was close to me and the opportunities that were close to me. Um, otherwise I was just going to be relegated to hunting like Saturdays cause there's no hunt, there's no Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania. So you travel three and a half hours, you get one day to hunt and then you're driving home and that's it. And so I really just wanted more opportunities. So I was like, let me just start branching out and exploring the public land that's around me. And I did a Montana hunt where I went to, and I hunted, I did a DIY elk hunt out there on, on public. And that's really kind of what started fueling the fire was that. And it was just like the lack of boundaries and restrictions and stuff like that. That really was, you know, was interesting to me. Um, and so now the podcast really kind of focuses on, and the YouTube channel focuses on the DIY traveling bow hunter the person who wants to go get after it in their home state somewhere else you know and just doing it all yourself um doesn't mean you don't have some buddies go along with you but that you're doing the planning yourself you're not paying for permission you know or, or anything like that um it truly is grassroots and just figuring it out on your own and trying to make you know m make things happen in, in in tough places just like anyone else would have the opportunity to so that's really that's really my bag if you will yeah no that's definitely cool so that's kind of one of the things like me and my buddy, we, um, we sat down and we were talking about like, Oh, you know, maybe we should get a lease and this and that and do all that. And then work the land. And we're like, okay, let's realistically figure out drive time, how far it would be. And he actually put together an entire spreadsheet and, and figured out, crunched some numbers and how many times he'd visit it. And he's like, you know what, if we just hunt public and deer hunt, we could actually afford what we'd spend on the lease to go elk hunting every year and still be mm -hmm. money ahead and more animals ahead, you know, and, and it's kind of funny to think about that, but you know, and Hey, and some guys, if they have the income to do that and, and do it, I'm not knocking it, but it kind of opened my eyes as far as like my hunting opportunities and what's, what's truly around me. So I think it's really cool when you hear other stories of people where they're like, yeah, you know what? I just wanted to, I got that taste of that freedom of just being able to go to any piece of land I want and try and figure it out. And, and, uh, that's kind of what thrilled me too, is, Every time I get a new piece, you try and figure it out. You might struggle for a while, and then all of a sudden you start getting on them, patterning them, finding them, and then it's like, wow, mm -hmm. okay, I got this now, you know? Right, so, yeah. It, it's it's funny. Like, I don't want to make it sound like hunting in like, public land makes you any better of a hunter. I can only speak from my per my own experience, right? Um, that's That's the only thing I have to go on. But what I will say is that I feel like it's definitely expedited, you know, any type of learning curve that I would have had otherwise. Um, because I did grow up hunting private land, you know, all my life, you know, and, you know, in, in, into like the recent, you know, five-ish years or so. Um, 
you know, you start to become a little complacent. You start to understand how a property works, right? You kind of start to figure out how the deer like to move, what pinch points you're going to want to use and things like that. And so you're really not playing the chess match so much anymore, you know, like you, like you have to whenever elements are always kind of cha- ever changing, right? Um, you know, I don't begrudge anybody who has the financial means to go get a lease or do whatever, like, you know, good, good for you. If that's what you like and you're getting your, your kicks and you're enjoying yourself, then, you know, Hey, you know, I'm all for it. You know, part of it is, is like maybe guy has more money than he has time that that's possible. Right. You know, and, and if that, if that's the <laughs> yeah. case, you know what I mean? Then a lease probably is in your best interest, right? If you're really into hunting and you want good hunting opportunities, because I know for me, you know, I got to put the time in to find good opportunities, you know, and, and that's part of me is what I like about it and that I can go find good deer. I'm not, if there's not a good deer on this piece of property that I want to hunt, which is what I was starting to run into on the family pieces where it's like the type of, the type of deer and the type of hunt that I wanted to have, I just wasn't having those experiences anymore. Um, and, and that was really kind of like the catalyst to say, Hey, you know, if you want these certain types of experiences and maybe chase a certain age class of deer or whatever, you know, there was one deer in particular on the farm that I chased. He was a four and a half year old. And the whole time I ever hunted that place, that was the only four and a half year old deer I'd ever seen on that property. You know, so, yeah. you know, and if you want to, and I'm not saying I'm chasing four and a half year old deer exclusively in Pennsylvania on public land, because that's a hard animal to come by and PA, <laughs> PA in a lot of cases. I mean, there's certain pockets in PA where you can consistently get on deer like that. And I've got some good buddies and that live in those areas who do get on deer like that consistently. But in the eastern part of PA, the hunting pressure is pretty intense. You've got a lot of folks coming from Jersey or New York that are hunting, you know, these general areas, just as well as the population density around this area in general. Um, three and a half year old deer is a good deer <laughs> in this in, in this area, you know, and so that's really kind of probably what I'm what I'm consistently trying to target um, in, in in this area. But just the ability to to take a piece apart and consistently have to try to go find the deer and hunt the deer down. Um, it was part, once I got a taste of it, it was really, there was no turning back. Um, cause I truly felt like I was, it forced me to kind of go into predator mode a little bit and truly hunt and stop waiting and, and, and start kind of creating the action. And I'm just a firm believer on public ground. If you're not hunting aggressively, you're going to be in for a lot of long sits <laughs> of, of no action. Absolutely. You know? And so it forces you to kind of adapt your style a little bit. And what I've found is it's ultimately helped me be confident and willing to go to other places and hunt without someone else with me. You know what I mean? Or not when I say someone else with me, but like knowing someone from an area to get knowledge from, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm fully willing to go into a place that I've never been before, never scouted before and only have looked at it on a map online and just go in and try to make it happen. And that was exactly what the Missouri hunt was this year. Never been there, never scouted it. Didn't know anybody from there. Uh, the guy that was filming me, filming me was from Missouri, but he was from Southern Missouri. So he had no intel on that piece. I mean, it was like where we were at and what he hunts were like worlds apart in terms of like habitat, size of deer, (laughs) caliber of deer, like the whole nine. Um, and so it was just a blank slate and me trying to create on it. Um, and that's, that's what I kind of really like. And I almost feel like I prefer to hunt that way even at home anymore. Um, I still do a lot of scouting you know, and stuff like that. But I sometimes wish I didn't because I sometimes, <laughs> um, I, I sometimes get myself into a situation where I, I have too many of the puzzle pieces and it keeps me from being flexible, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I kind of sell myself on like a hunt is going to happen here. A kill is going to happen here. And I sell myself on that 
and I'll start to get attached to like an area. And especially if I know there's a deer there, which happened this year, I knew there was a couple deer that I wanted to kill that was in a particular area. And I just, I got somewhat not married to a spot, but attached to the idea that this kill should happen in this spot as opposed to if I didn't know anything about it, I would have just kind of, once I saw the sign and had visual of deer, I would have just said, okay, it's in this area. Now I just need to find the right spot to be in the area to make the kill and not care about where it was at. But I was just was so confident in this one setup. I was like, it's got to happen here. Truth of the matter was, it should have happened probably three, four different times. And it just <laughs> one, one I screwed up and three times I wasn't there. So, oh, I totally get it. I've, I've got a uh, situation almost identical to what you just said to where I scouted and um, I found quite a few places that I wanted to hit up, but I ended up day one of my rutcation ended up getting on a really, really nice buck. And then, so it was fixated in my head. I'm like, okay, he's in this area. I know he's coming through here. This is the scrape line he's on, you know? And it just went, it went from there to the point where I was like, okay, I got to get back to that spot. Oh wait, what day is the wind going to be right? And I'd position myself all across this spot in like, you know, 400 yards this way, that way, or the other way, trying to play the wind and get on him when I probably should have just, I don't even know what kind of deer because I never put up any cameras. I don't even know what other deer were at this other spot, mm-hmm. which was across a river. So, I mean, there could have been a huge, so needless to say, I never even got to this other spot with this huge bedding area. And it was, you know, November, October, late October, early November, when, you know, they're cruising right through those doe bedding areas, scent check. And it was super stupid of me to not even go over there and check out that other one, which I would have had the right wind for But instead I was fixated on that one deer I put my eyes on. So I totally get it. It, And it happens. And that's like this year I ended up, I wanted to get out on a couple other pieces. I've got like six pieces of property that I want to check out. And I never even ended up getting to any of those other pieces because I was so fixated on hunting that one piece. It's kind of crazy how, you know, your mind works like that. But I mean, it worked out. I didn't take the deer that I wanted because I ran out of time because I spent Mm -hmm. so much time chasing them. But um, I mean, it all worked out in the end, but it just kind of, I totally understand how you're talking about, you know, you just get kind of fixated on something and in your mind, you want it to play out like it, like it works in your mind rather than just setting up on the deer and trying to get it get a a shot on them yeah yeah totally and it it was it was interesting because i I had found this area scouting last off season it was actually the blessing in disguise of the pandemic and all the craziness that surrounded that was i scouted every piece of public land within a half hour drive of my house last year because every saturday and sunday i would just go out and scout because there wasn't anything else to do you know it wasn't (laughs) like the family could go anywhere to visit anybody or anything like that you know so it was just every day, you know, every weekend I would take the dog and he and I would go out and spend all day Saturday and Sunday just scouring, you know, different pieces of public land. And I kind of, I was looking at the map and it was, you know, this one area that I wanted to look at. And when I walked into it, it was just like primary scrape area, hammer scrapes. And I was just like, yeah, this is the spot. It's kayaking access only, you know? So I was like, oh, all perfect. right. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is money. And so I actually hung a cell camera nearby to monitor those scrapes. And we I actually had deer hitting it in the summer. Um, you know, not frequently, but probably like once every two weeks or so, I'd have a couple deer come through and hit, hit the licking branch that was there. Um, and so I was just kind of monitoring that because I really felt like it was in between two doe bedding areas. Cause it was actually in between two like cedar thickets, um, on each side of it. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to monitor this because I feel like this is, has the potential to have good deer near it. Right. And so I just kind of left it alone and I was like, and I won't touch that until like I get like a visual of like a good deer starting to hit, hit those scrapes. 
And then in the meantime, I ended up glassing like over the summer and I had some cameras in like another spot that I ended up scouting that wasn't far away from that place. And I ended up having, I don't know, it was probably like a mid, for PA, it was really good deer. It was like a mid 130s eight point, you know, and just a really good deer. And he was actually on the down, it was on like the, I guess the leeward side of this, uh, this clear cut. And, and I found like the bed, like the main, I guess, well, one of the beds that was in there, uh, in the off season. And I hung a camera there and I watched it, man. And I had bucks all summer hitting it, hitting this, this mock scrape at like nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, anywhere between <laughs> like seven 30 and like 1 PM, they would hit it like no nighttime activity. And I probably, and this is crazy for Pennsylvania because there's like the, 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 the sex ratios aren't great here, which is why the rut sometimes is more of like a trickle rut or you don't really see it or whatever the case is. Um, but I was probably getting five images of a buck for every one image of a doe in that particular spot. I mean, it was just like a, a super highway of bucks just like back and forth all the time. And I was like, I was like, get out of here. I was like, it's happening now. I was like, I know there's does bedded in here somewhere, like around this clear cut. I was like, this place is going to be dynamite come rut. Well, season opened and I ended up hunting that spot early because it was just so much early activity on it. And it just vanished. I mean, literally like, my season opens September 19th this past year. Uh, I'm, I'm hunting a, or I live in a special regs unit, so I come in just a couple weeks early, like a week or two early. Um, and it was like someone turned the faucet off. Scrape dried up, deer went away, like getting sparse pictures of deer. Now there was no bucks and all does. It was just like the weirdest thing. And I hunted it a couple times. I ended up glassing this bean field, again, not too far away from this spot, close to those scrapes that I had originally found. And I, I glassed the two biggest deer I've ever seen in Pennsylvania. Um, one was probably anywhere from 150 to 160, you know, and the other one was probably was like in the one forties. Um, and they were close to the piece of public that I was hunting where I had cameras hung and where that hammer scrape, uh, primary scrape was. And I was like, it's like, man, if I'm, I'm looking at the map and I'm like, there's a couple of hedgerows and some private property in between, but there's really nowhere for any, anything to bed It's the closest decent bedding was like this chunk of timber in between like these private properties and the public. And that private property wasn't very big. Like it was maybe tops 10 acres of timber maybe. And like out of that 10 acres, maybe only like an acre or so that would have been actually like decent bedding or whatever. Um, so when I was looking, I was like, man, I, those bucks have to be bedded in that northwest corner of this of this public. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go for broke, and I'm going to go in and see if I can find them. So I went in to try to find them, and I actually kicked them out of bed. And <laughs> um, so then I went in and tried to hunt them again, uh, I think two different times from the ground when I had the right wind, and never caught up to them, never got them on camera, never nothing. I mean, it was like a ghost. you know. So I wasn't going to waste my entire season chasing just a giant deer that I don't know exactly where it was at. And then mid-October, that scrape heated up, and like the one deer that was probably like 140s, um, he actually ended up st- sticking around, and I got that was the one that I was trying to kill there. So I actually had three really good deer um, to try to kill in that, like within, I don't know, like a two-mile area probably, you know, roughly, and just couldn't quite get it done. There was a there was a there was another shooter that was in there that was hitting that scrape that right after I got back from Missouri, I hunted it, and. Um, he came in zombie walking and I should have killed him. I just didn't grab my bow in time because I didn't know which buck it was because there was like three different bucks that were hitting that scrape. And I just made a rookie mistake, probably because I was just beat from grinding like for two <laughs> weeks in Missouri and Ohio. 
And I just, I was like, is that a buck? And I was like, yeah, it looks like a buck. And I was like, it might be that spike that's been hitting this scrape consistently. I just never grabbed my bow. And then by the time he popped his head out of brush, I was like, oh shit, that's the, that's one of the two I wanted to shoot. And at that point he, there wasn't any, once he cleared that brush line, there wasn't anything between he and I. And, um, it was only a matter of time until he was going to win because I had zero wind and all my scent was just dropping to the bottom of the tree. There was no thermal pool. There was nothing helping me at all. Um, he got within five yards, <laughs> you know, and that was, and I had to just watch him. He stared at me. He didn't blow out. He just turned around. and was like, yeah, I don't like what's going on here and, and turned around and that was it. So did you ever, you never got a chance back at that buck then or never saw him again. No, that was it. It was funny. Cause I had seen him earlier in the year. Um, there were three different deer that hit that scrape. So it was one of the ones that I glassed was hitting that scrape. The big one, the one that was like the 150, 160, whatever. I never saw him again. Like I saw him in the bean field. I bumped him out of his bed and then I never, never saw him again. Um, my guess is, is like, cause that happened right at the beginning of the year. So my guess is, is like, he was probably going to shift. Like he, he just hadn't shifted to his fall range yet. And I, and that's why I was hunting him aggressively. Cause I knew I probably was going to lose him like to wherever he was going to go for, for his fall range. And I probably had one, maybe two hunts to try to kill him. And if, and I couldn't wait, I had to just go try to, be aggressive and get as close to where I could find him where I thought he was bedded and try to kill him. And just, you know, I got burnt. <laughs> Man, you guys are pretty aggressive. lucky. I don't, I don't even get to start hunting until October 1st. So that's yeah, pretty well, that's, good. Yeah. For the most of the state it is. I mean, that's the one thing around here is that if you do find a good deer, you know, and you, and you have a good idea where he, if you can glass him and you can figure out, you know, okay, this is how he's getting out of this, out of this food source. Now the bummer is in PA, it's not like when you head to the Midwest, a lot of the, um, a lot of the public around here is like shit mountain ground or swamp, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's not a lot of adjacent ag or anything like that, you know, around you get lucky once in a while. And this wasn't even bordering. There was still like, in my opinion, I got kind of lucky that, he was bedded where he was bedded because most times, I mean, that was, it was a, it was a fair distance. The only thing that saved me was like the block of timber that was in between wasn't great. And I assumed that the does were going to take the first bit of bedding that was closest to food. And those mature deer were going to move an additional line behind to the next best bedding to get away from the social pressure. And that's what I was kind of banking on. And that's, and that's exactly, that's exactly what it was, but you can work a, a bed to food pattern early here if you know where he's at, cause you probably got a week, maybe two, if you're lucky to, so, to try to kill him. So are the deer, are they traveling further then? I mean, to get to a food source, like you were talking about it, whether it's crap swamp ground or if it's uh, you know, mountain mountainous timber, stuff like that. Are they just traveling further or are they just hitting like mass crops harder? Um, you know, stuff uh, like that. Yeah. They, in some cases, I think they have to travel a little further. I would say it's probably more so they're taking really odd lines of travel because they're using like hedgerows in between property lines and stuff like that. You know what I mean? To where it's like, he might just intersect a particular area where you can hunt and it might only be like a 50 yard swath that he's going to be able to cross. You know what I mean? It's closest to like the food to, to at least, <laughs> yeah. make, to at least make a play in early season. You know I'll what take I mean? Like, <laughs> I yeah. take that 50 yard swath for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> But there's also, you know, did some kid ride his bike down the, down through yeah. the, the backyard? Did a neighbor walk their dog? Did a dog get loose? You know what I mean? There's all, I've had people walk within 10, 10 yards of my, my, uh, my tree, you know what I mean? Like out <laughs> their back door walking their dog before, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, so there's a lot of different variables that kind of go into it. Like, you know, you would think like the urban hunting 
is easier to get on a good buck if you know where he's at because there's only so many places he can be, man. But they'll they'll lay like right up against the backyard somewhere. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Where you hear the dog barking. Or like if you hear somebody, I've noticed on some pieces of property, you'll be sitting there and you're kind of close, as close as you can get to the houses, staying on property boundaries and stuff like that. Um, and you could, all of a sudden you hear somebody's dog light up and it's like, okay, those deer are passing that yard, you know, like the dog's barking, but it doesn't bother the deer anymore. They'd become, you know, just kind of accustomed to it and they'll mm-hmm. come passing right through and sure, sure enough, it'll be 35, 45 minutes later there they come right past your stand and you're like okay so that dog knows what's up all i got to do is listen to him i know where they're going to be there that's right, you know right. stuff like that i've kind of i've kind of noticed some things like that every once in a while it's kind of neat it's indicators you know but mm-hmm. but yeah I, I totally get what you're saying yeah but to answer your question it's like most of the deer that i'm hunting aren't hitting hitting like an ag ag source like they're they're feeding on green briar and just in in, in browse there might, you know, maybe they're summer bedding. There's somewhere that they're, you know, laying up close to like a, uh, an ag field somewhere that's, you know, within two miles, three miles, like whatever. But the areas that I'm typically hunting, there's very few plays for me from a bed to food kind of pattern. This was the only one that I had. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even call it a bed to food pattern. Like I said, I, I feel like I got more lucky kind of like playing the odds of like, or oh, those are probably going to bed first line. He's probably going to have to move back a little further. I mean, he was so close to the private property line. Like it was like, I found him 20 yards on the public before he was on private property. You know what I mean? So it was like, it wasn't like he was far on it. You know what I mean? It was like, it was just enough that I could, where I found him bedded, where I kicked him up, you know? So, you know, I would say, that deer probably most times was probably bedded on the private just out of my reach. You know, right. um, I would say that was just probably a day, maybe the wind or maybe he got bumped by something else that pushed him back a little further or, or whatever the case was. Cause there was not a stitch of sign back in there that told me he was there. I just knew it was, I knew from scouting previously how thick that area was back there. Um, and I had seen a lot of doe tracks whenever I had scouted it previously. And I, so I knew that there were deer back there and I was like, Hmm, I wonder if he's back in that corner because that's like, that's the one place that he would maybe hole up, you know? And so it just, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So, uh, are you going to get out there now and kind of look at some late season sign and see if you can find some stuff that got left, you know, so see what's still living and, and all that kind of stuff search for some sheds and yeah, yeah. I'm the world's worst shed hunter, man. It's like, I Me always too. tell people, it's like, I, it, it starts off as shed hunting and it turns into scouting real quick. Um, you know, but I will go out on this piece and try to find, try to find some sheds. Cause I feel like there's some, I feel like I have a fair amount to learn about this piece. Cause last year was the only time I scouted it. I speed scouted it one day and then I, uh, and I hunted it, you know, oh, not the same spot, but that piece I probably hunted six times this season or whatever in different in different areas and one location i probably hunted three times or whatever where i had where i thought i was going to have a good encounter well where i had the encounter with the one shooter um so i still have a fair amount to learn about that about that particular piece i feel um so i will go out and and kind of dissect it a little further but i won't spend a lot of time you know i i used to probably spend and i think that's what helped me last year it's like last year i got on more good deer um than I ever have in a single season. Um, and part of it was, is because I didn't, at least in my opinion, I didn't spend a lot of time scouting any one specific piece. Um, you know, I kind of scouted like I hunt, you know, if that, if that, if that makes sense, at least when I'm freestyle hunting, especially out of state, I 
kind of looked at the map and kind of figured out what like my high percentage spots were, you know, based on access, um, based on prevailing wind during the time of year that I thought I'd be hunting it. Um, and then, you know, based on topography, habitat, you know, was there diversity of habitat and stuff like that. And so I basically just went in and like hacked off like a lot of these sections and like, all right, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. So I really have like a hundred acres corner here that I think is probably going to be the spot that's going to be worth me spending my time. And I would just beeline to that spot and, and scout that, you know, and it might take me a while to get there cause it might be the furthest point away or whatever. Um, but I would spend time there kind of looking around and figuring out if it was going to be worth it, worth my time or not. And if I didn't see, you know, old, you know, like a primary scrape area, or if I didn't see like a hammer rub or a cluster of really good rubs, like I really wasn't, I was just keep moving, you know, it wasn't worth my time to to stop. And so with that this year, it's like, I just covered a ton of ground, which is why I feel like I had as many prospects as, as I, as I did, you know, so I don't really go in and scour a piece from like top to bottom. Um, you know, I kind of learned that more so probably from talking a lot with like Cody DeQuisto, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of something I picked up from him. Um, you know, the either in, you know, podcast conversations or text messages back and forth. And then my buddy, Greg Litzinger, he's very much the same way. The bow hunting fiend from New Jersey. He's, he's a savage. And, uh, I actually spent some time scouting with him last year. Um, one of these, or, you know, one of the pieces that I hunted this year. Um, and, uh, you know, just it's I think it's always just cool to watch how other guys do things. You know, you start to see how they pick stuff apart and you start to understand what they're looking for in, in maps and how they're kind of breaking down a piece and trying to find the best stuff and in and, and what they're really looking for. Um, and so I paid attention to uh, to a lot of that whenever I was, you know, with Greg and it just kind of reaffirmed that the approach that I was taking was probably um, the, the right path. I maybe don't do it 100 percent correctly, but I was on the right path, if you will. So, so like with that being said, then, so when you're looking at this map and you're looking for things, I get like, you're looking for, you know, transition type pieces and stuff like that. But are you say early season versus towards like mid season or late season? Are you looking for different things than what you would in each part of the season? Yeah. I mean, I think early season, if I do have a, if I do have a food play, like I'm certainly gonna, I'm certainly gonna look for that. Um, you know, and I think the early part of the season, I'm really going to kind of prioritize air. I mean, I'm always looking for thick cover just in, just in general, but in early part of the season, I'm really kind of looking for thick out of the way cover. Um, because that's probably where I'm going to find a buck or I'm going to find, you know, buck sign of like peeling velvet or starting to lay it down like a little bit of, you know, rub sign or whatever tracks or whatever the case is. I'm really kind of prioritizing getting away from, from people, you know, cause that's ultimately where the, you know, a buck is likely going to be bedded or spending his time. Cause let's be honest, it's a, if it's a mature deer of, of, of any age or even a, a, I'll even say a three and a half year old in Pennsylvania, you know, they're not, they're not going to move a whole lot in daylight. Right. And for the most part, as much pressure as PA has, even from a bow hunting perspective, they're not moving much more than like a hundred yards or so from their bed in daylight in the early part of the season before their testosterone cranks. And then they start laying down, you know, territorial sign or breeding sign, you know? So I'm really trying to use any bit of Intel that I got from like trail camera data, you know, truthfully early season, I probably rely on my trail camera inventory that I do probably anything else. Um, do I have a deer in the area that's spending time that I'm getting in daylight? If so, can I backtrack him to where he's, coming from and i'll oftentimes run my cameras on video mode because i want to see which direction his ass is pointed and which direction his, his, his head is pointed when he hits that camera 
And then from there, I can start to tell like timestamp. All right. If he came in with 45 minutes of, of light left, you know, before dark, I'm probably within 200 yards of his bed somewhere would be my guess roughly. Right. So then I start looking at, okay, what are the bedding features that are around here, you know, for him to, to, to bed successfully, to be, to be hidden and be able to escape. Right. Whenever I start to hit the later parts of the season, you know, just like most people, I start really kind of prioritizing, you know, a lot of transition lines and areas like that to where there's going to be a lot of travel and a lot of signs start to get laid down. Um, and then still kind of focusing always on side cover. Cause I'm always looking for, you know, scrapes that are going to be in, in and around bedding cover, especially for does at that point, at that, at that point of the year. Um, so cover is really my theme for all year late season. I suck at it. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> honest. You know, it's late season is like, I almost start scouting during late season. Um, because I just, I don't have great food options around here. Um, and I've just never, for whatever reason, it's funny, Greg and I've talked about it. I'm like, I don't know. Like I just struggle during, I struggle during late season. Um, and I don't blame it on food necessarily. Cause it's, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that deer have to feed during late season, like crazy when the, when the temps dip, because it's biologically not correct from how I understand it. I had a conversation with Don Higgins about it and he was like, deer's metabolism slow that's like it's the evolutionary feature that they have to keep them alive otherwise they would die in maine in canada <laughs> you know right, what i mean because because right. there is no food um so they don't have to get up and feed like everyone thinks they do when you have driving bad weather like sub-zero temperatures sleet snow like just terrible terrible conditions that's when they will have to get up get up and feed but otherwise they're not and they're going to move less because they're trying to conserve so they move even less in in late season than they do in early season because they're trying to conserve as many calories as they can because they're just they're in that almost hibernation mode to a degree. Um, so I've just not been real successful at getting on very specific good late season bedding. And if I did, I wasn't close enough for the, to see them in daylight. You know, so. Yeah. So late season's really been a uh, has really been a challenge for me. It's something I try to focus on and get better at each year. Um, but just um, to no avail to this point. So that's kind of weird, because like for me, I always try and hunt like field edges and stuff like that late season. And it always, I don't know. I always get myself tripped up with it because I get on the deer, but it seems that by the time they get to me, it's, you know, right at the end of shooting hours or something like that to where I don't know why I don't try and focus more on trying to get on them before they get to, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm always waiting on the field edge for them to come past me and go feed. And it's like, it never, it just never plays out. You know what I mean? Like in, in my yeah. head, I, I always think I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a move. And it just, it never pans out. It's always too late by the time they come in, especially like a mature deer. A mature deer is always the last one to set foot in that field. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it's just, it's crazy for me to think that, but for some reason I never get mm -hmm. to that transition area. And I, I don't know why I don't do that, but I think that's something I need to try and work on for my late season. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, what state are you in again? I forget. I'm in Illinois. Yeah. Illinois. Okay. Are you like what the what's the topo look like? Is it any any little bit of hill country? Is it completely flat or? Um, it's kind of it's mostly flat, but uh, the, a lot of the stuff I hunt is like, um, it's kind of like big oak, wide open river bottoms with uh, you mm -hmm. know like with some mixed ag in there in in between. So, okay. Yeah, it's got some different different topo to it. 
Right. Because one thing I've tried to pay attention to if I were in hill country, you know, ish, or if I had like a little bit of elevation that I thought deer were bedded on the elevation and then coming down the feet, it was like I was listening to, I think it was Gene Wenzel talk about it, especially for mature deer. And he was saying, you know, that basically exactly what you're saying. He was like, you know, you hunt these, um, these ag areas, you know, he's like, if you have some, some elevation or whatever, like the deer are often, you know, coming down off the top and, you know, they're really kind of, Either the does will be the first ones out in the young bucks because what they're doing is, is you know, we're just going to say the wind is consistent in this area just for purposes of, of this conversation. And he's like, you know, if it's sunny or whatever, he's like, you know, you'll usually see those deer start to move off those elevation pieces while they still have the rising thermal. So they are still catching like the scent from the bottom and they can kind of scent check as they're going on their way out. He's like, you'll never see a mature buck do that, right? He's like, what you will see is a mature buck wait till almost dark, like you're saying, and come down, which doesn't make sense because everyone's always like, you know, a mature buck wants to use the wind in his favor, right? But a mature buck is smart enough to know that he has other kind of um, markers, if you will, of danger, right? And so what he's doing is waiting for the wind or the thermals to shift. So his thermals are at his back. He's scent, che- he's scent checking his six. While he's using the deer that have already passed through in front of him as the canary in the mine shaft to tell him that everything is okay in the in the field or in the transition area or whatever. And so I've tried to pay attention and kind of and watch whenever I had situations like that to see like, you know, because the, the you know, um, I guess the common kind of thought is, is that deer always want to have like the wind in their favor. But I, I've seen it personally on occasion and I've talked to guys like, you know, Greg Litzinger or – you know, Jake Elinger from, from Michigan, who's a big habitat guy where it's like, they've killed bucks and seen mature deer consistently walk with the wind to their back, you know, during daylight or right before dark or whatever. And so I think it's just really kind of understanding, like, what are all the factors that are at play that, that a mature deer in your area is going to use to try to keep himself, to keep himself safe. Right. Yeah. And, and a lot of it, especially late season is like, do not move unless you have to, you know what I mean? And then when you do have all as many of the factors as you possibly can in your favor, you know, and look, I, I don't want to say I, I, Steve Bartilla, he always says like deer, like we give them more credit than they probably deserve in terms of like their <laughs> intelligence they're, at the end of the day, they're still an animal. Like they're not rationalizing, they're not reasoning necessarily, but you do get certain traits and adaptations that you have that have that you've learned to keep you alive that you continue to use. Right. And so, you know, if, if a deer has had success and, and stays safe by using a tailwind or dropping thermals when he, when the common knowledge or the common thinking would be, he should be using rising thermals, but the dropping thermal has kept him safe. It's going to likely continue to use a dropping thermal, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of, and I think sometimes we have to think outside the box a little bit too. It's like, because you know, it's like, for example, it was funny. I was talking to Litzinger about this the one day and we were talking about, you know, just how deer use the wind and stuff. And he was like, yeah, you know, he's like, if, if they always had to have it in their face, man, he's like, people would be like, you know, you got, the, <laughs> you got deer have to have the wind in their face. It's like, we got a Southwest wind and like in this area, like nonstop, right. it's like all of our deer being California or like Southern California, if that were the case, you know what I mean? It's like, yep. it just doesn't play out. And especially like on public land, it's not, you know, they've lived in that environment for so long when they get a swirling wind, it's not like they shit themselves. You know what I mean? They're just like, okay, I got a swirling wind. I've traveled this route so many times. It's going to switch back to me eventually. And they'll, and they'll continue to walk it with confidence. Like they don't have to have the wind in their favor 
100% of the time. And I think that that's one of the biggest learning curves is people trying to starting to understand, like, you got to give the deer the wind to a degree, regardless of what time of season it is, to have an opportunity to kill. And especially if it's a, a more mature deer, otherwise it's just not going to happen. Like they don't walk into a place without some type of wind advantage, you know, and the advantage might be that it's at their back because they have a thermal coming in their, in their face or the, the prevailing might be at their back there on their face or vice versa. Right. Um, and I think that that's like one of the things like outside of, you know, what we were talking about previously of like, how do you set up for late season or whatever? Again, I'm, I'm terrible at it, but I think being even more keyed into those things because they're, they're even more tuned in because of the amount of pressure that they face the entire, the entire season. Yeah. So, you know, it's like all those things become critical, you know? So most importantly the the wind probably above above all and then cover you know where's the high stem count stuff to get into that transition area that you're talking about right because you might get lucky with one coming to a field edge you know of, of with some age on him but man i wouldn't want to be a betting man on that russian roulette wheel you know what i mean <laughs> i like, haven't been <laughs> too successful on that so far but right. hopefully my plan is, is just take does at the late season because I, i'm already bucked out but yeah <laughs> I, I always tell myself that too and then i end up passing does because i'm like oh this is a good spot a, a buck will come through here yeah. and it's just and it never happens <laughs> and they never do <laughs> that's for sure but so with let's kind of i want to transition a little bit here and talk about your sure. setup because it's pretty cool. And, and I've listened to a couple different podcasts and I think I listened to one of yours when you're talking about building it. And I may have checked out one or two videos. I think you posted some on, it was social or, or YouTube or something. Um, but so you, you recently built a mobile setup so you could camp out and have all your stuff with you and still be able to facilitate work if you needed to and do all this and, and hunt public property so you could even travel a little bit further distance or whatever to, to get to all these places. And I think that's really cool because my buddy and I have often contemplated like buying an old crappy van and, and retrofitting it to do stuff or, or whatever. But I always came to the conclusion that I wanted a trailer so I could still have my vehicle and have it to where I could actually use it as a vehicle. Yeah. You know, like my hunt rig now, I got bins so I can slide my bins out, you know, all my hunting gear and I can actually use my truck. But so I, I've kind of always piqued my interest when, when I think about like a trailer, cause then it's like, okay, this is my hunt rig. I'm going to hook it up. So can you yeah. kind of talk about that? And uh, like, what kind of trailer did you get? How and, did you start out? What, what did you do? Yeah. So, I mean, we back up just for like a second and how I even kind of came to the idea originally was, um, you know, I got into the, you know, being more mobile, you know, and hunting and, and hunting pretty much exclusively public land. And I really enjoy traveling to hunt. And, um, I just, I kind of came to the conclusion that I needed my ability to move from parcel to parcel and my mobility to get from piece to piece, um, to match the mobility that I use whenever I'm actually in the timber. And so, you know, it start. It really kind of started several years ago. I was hunting this piece of big woods with my buddy Chad Sylvester, and we actually used. He owns Exodus Outdoor Gear, and we were using the Exodus trailer. We didn't have like a camper or whatever, and we were staying at this place. And he, he was like, "I'll just bring the pool behind trailer we use for trade shows." And we we're like, "Cool." We put two cots in it. We slept, froze our ass off. <laughs> um, we had a, we had an extension cord that was plugged into like a little space heater that we bought at like Walmart because we didn't even have heat at first, and then it got super cold. Um, and it was a hard, grueling 10 day hunt. And that was kind of like, I was like, okay, 
I want something like this, but something that's like a little warmer. And then fast forward, like, you know, I, I went somewhere else the following year and I forget where it was. And then I ended up going to Iowa, not this past season, but the season before. And I had a cabin and I had some really good public land around me that I was hunting, um, killed a decent deer, uh, but was fortunate that the place that I actually scouted wasn't the place I ended up hunting. I ended up hunting a completely different piece of public land that was close by. And I just got, I was just fortunate to where I got the cabin that I was staying in was situated to where I could get to a bunch of different pieces of public. And I was like, man, this would have been a really tough trip if that other piece of public wasn't close by or if where I picked the stay wasn't just kind of like centrally located. Right. And so I was like, I need to be able to move that way when I go to these states, especially when I'm they're really far away and I might not know anything about them other than e-scouting. I need the ability to be able to go to like the next piece of public that might be an hour and a half away, you know, to try to give myself an opportunity to get on deer. Um, that's, that was really like how it started. And then I kind of went through all the things of like, I, I camped out of my truck for like a, a couple long weekends, like doing some out of state stuff and it was okay. And I was just like, I need, I need more room and I want to be able to do this long term. So I want to be able to like, be able to go for like weeks at a time and, and for scouting too, to be honest. Um, and so I got the idea to convert a cargo trailer. I was like, I don't need a ton of room. I need the bare essentials. I was like, but I need some creature comforts if I'm going to be out in it for you know, 14, 15, 20 days, whatever it is. Um, and I probably need to be able to work from it. If I can, I was like, if I can figure out a way to be able to work successfully from this thing, again, blessing from the pandemic is that I work remotely now. And so there's no reason for me to have to go back to the office again. Right. So if that's the case, if I can figure out how to work remotely and hunt at the same time, then I can extend my hunting trips. Cause then I can hunt mornings and evenings and just work during the work during the day. Right. Um, so I, my grandfather passed away. Um, and my grand, he had, he was big into crafts and building like all kinds of wood stuff. And he built crazy doll houses that were full, like fully like with electrical running them and stuff like that. He <laughs> built my, it was crazy. crazy. Like a man could, yeah, he could build anything with wood. It was kind of crazy. Um, and when he passed away, he had this, they hadn't done anything with it for years cause his health wasn't good enough that he couldn't really do anything, but he had all this crafting stuff and his tools and stuff like that in this trailer at the farm. And, I was talking to my stepdad about it, about it. Cause at one point I was going to buy it, but he wanted like a bunch of money. He was old and he's like, Oh, you give me this for it. And I was like, as I realized I spent another 500 bucks and get a new one. Right. Like this one's like from <laughs> yeah. 1990, 96, you know, um, he, old man drove a hard bargain. Um, so my, my, whenever he passed, my grandmother was just getting rid of a bunch of his stuff. And so my stepdad was like, Hey, is there any tools that you want from, from Pap's shop or whatever, you know, any saws or anything like that? And I was like, nah, I was like, I really have everything I need or whatever. I don't really need anything. Like if you can sell them and get some money out of them, do that. And, uh, he's like, no, do you still, do you still want that trailer? And I was like, I was like, look, if she, if, if grandma's just going to give it away to somebody, I was like, I'll take it, you know? And so she, you know, and she was like, yeah, he can have it. And I was like, well, look, I'll give you a couple hundred bucks for it or whatever. And so I gave her a couple hundred bucks for it and I got the trailer. It's mauve. It's purple, like, <laughs> which is <Sweet>. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's all distressed. So it's like a cool purple. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, it's not cool at all. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a six by 10 trailer. Uh, and so I really personally, I, I, I preferred to have something that was like seven by 12. That's really what I wanted, but I got it for a song. So I wasn't going to, wasn't going to complain about it. Um, and then I started kind of thinking about like, all right, well, how am I going to like outfit this thing? And the hardest part was just because I was working with such small space, it was like critical where you put everything because I didn't have room to make mistakes <laughs> essentially. And I knew at most, you know, we're, I was probably going to have like me and my buddy Chad traveling. Cause he's, he's my road dog. We do all of our hunting together. And, 
we travel out of state every year together. This coming year, we're going to going we're going to Kansas. So every year, it's like I go to like at least one, two, maybe three states or whatever. Um, and uh, I decided to put a bunk bed in it for me uh, because I'm short enough that I can fit inside of six by or six foot walls, right? So it's like it's ten by six, so six feet wide, ten feet long, and I'm like five nine, so I can lay a long ways across the back of it, right? So I put a I put a bunk in so I can store stuff underneath of it, and then I actually set up a, an e track system or a railing in it uh, to hang a hammock for Chad to sleep in. That way, if when he's not with me, I don't have a bed in the way or whatever, and he likes to sleep in a hammock, so it's like it worked out perfect. And so that was really like the hardest part was figuring out how I was going to sleep both of us in there comfortably and still have enough room to do the things we needed to do because um, he runs a business, so he needs to be able to work too. And then came the the power and trying to figure out what I was going to do for power. And I, and, and I thought about a gas generator and stuff like that, and I just didn't, didn't want to have to fool with like – I wanted to go hunt and that was kind of the whole premise of building this thing. I wanted to build it in a way that I wasn't going to spend time hauling stuff, you know, going to get gas, running generators and fixing anything. Like that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to go drop it, hunt. If I didn't like where I was at, I wanted to be able to like tear down in 20 minutes, you know, 10 minutes or 10 minutes roughly and be hitched up and onto the next piece, headed to the next piece of public. And so I ended up using all solar for the power, um, 1500 watt hour generator, um, and 280 Watts of solar panels on the roof. Cause basically what I'm going to be charging is, you know, some laptops, phones, uh, hotspots, stuff like that to podcast out of it, to, to work out of it. So as long as I have a cell phone, a hotspot and my computer, I can, I can work from it. Um, and so that was what I ended up running for power. I didn't hardwire any of the lights in. I just I have stick up lights that give me plenty of light. The reason being is I didn't want anyone out there that's ever messed with a trailer. It's like the one thing that's the biggest pain in the ass with those things is the wiring. The wiring harness always breaks. <laughs> and I was like, it's like the last thing I want to be doing is trying to figure out where the wires in the wall for my internal lights, where they've fritzed out. And I don't want to spend time doing that while I'm on a hunt. So it's just kill that. It's put lights in that just stick up that, that are batteries. I used it for two weeks this year and ran the same set of batteries for the entire two weeks. So if I have to change batteries once every three weeks, like, yeah, no big cares? deal. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what did and, you do? Did you, did you insulate the trailer then? I mean, did I you... did. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up insulating the floorboards underneath of the floor, um, uh, with like inch thick, uh, inch, inch thick, like just pink Panther insulation foam board. Yep. I think I forget what the R value of that was. It might've been five, I think roughly. If I'm remembering that correctly, um, or maybe higher. Um, and then I used half inch on the walls and then I put kind of like wood paneling on the walls. It looks like pallet wood. So it looked kind of like campy or whatever. Cause I was like, sure. I'm going to live in this. I'm gonna, like, if I, I'm going to live in this thing for like weeks at a time, I was like, I want it to feel like I'm not just sitting staring, staring at, at tin with rivets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so I did that. And then for heat, I ended up using a Marine, uh, Dickinson, uh, Marine heater, it's really built for uh, boat cabins. Um, it's 9,000 BTUs, runs on propane. So I ran a propane line in from the outside, cut a hole, and ran a propane line in. I have two propane tanks on the front. So one really kind of runs the heat, um, and the other one just is, is a backup. And then if I need, I use it to refill pound tanks to, to run a, a propane stove to cook on. But otherwise, so, it's like – I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So otherwise, it, it what? I was going to say, otherwise, it's like I just use a jet boil and some like re- uh, dehydrated meals um, to, to eat for the most part. Um, and then I did drop like a, uh, 15 amp, um, 
like it's not a sure it's a sure power line adapter essentially it's like it's not doesn't have fuses and stuff like that it's just something where i could literally take an extension cord plug it in and then plug in from the inside into that adapter and i can run power if i'm at a campsite that has power to save my to save my solar battery but when we were in missouri we had three guys living in it which was a lot <laughs> for that small of a piece <laughs> um and we were filming the hunt so chad was filming his i had a guy that was uh it was filmed for tethered and he was filming me with like full on like DSLRs and, you know, black magic cameras and stuff like that. So we were recharging batteries, phones for multiple or multiple camera batteries, multiple phones, laptops. And we never lost more than like one bar. So like 20% of the battery power. And when we would go out to hunt, it would be recharged when we came back home. So it's pretty good. Yeah. So it, it did way more than I would, would have expected. Um, and then I also installed a cell booster, um, because some places we're going to go to, you know, I'm not always going to have like enough cell service where if I need to download like a, a big presentation that I need to review or something like that for work, I need to have enough cell service to be able to download that entire file. Um, so I installed a cell booster that's built for RVs. So as long as I have like something that resembles a roughly a bar of service, I can get that boosted to probably like three, maybe four bars and be able to function fully with internet on my laptop and do all the things I need to do, take zoom calls, whatever it is I need to do. I can, I can you know, do it all from the trailer. Um, so I do need to position it in a place that at least has like somewhat of a bar of service when we, when I go out to hunt. So two questions. Yeah. One, um, the, the heater did, is it, does it have like a type of vent or something on the heater or is it ventless? How, how does that work? Yeah. So I looked at a bunch of different options and I was going to go with a ventless one, but the challenge with those is like they put off, you know, supposedly they don't put off anything bad for you to inhale, but I kind of call bullshit on that. I just think that it puts <laughs> off stuff that, that won't kill you is maybe the better way to put it. Um, but it emits a lot of condensation. Um, and in a small area like that, if you don't have enough ventilation, like windows cracked or whatever, um, you're going to get moisture build up in there and it's your, your clothes are probably going to be a little bit damp and that sucks. No one wants to be wet and cold when they're hunting, you know? Right. Um, so the Dickinson heater, the way it works is, is that the, um, the exhaust, I have a chimney out through the roof and it has two pipes. Uh, the ex, the outside pipe, uh, I have that backwards. The inside pipe, the smaller diameter pipe that connects into the, the heater itself is what is emitting the exhaust, the outside pipe that is around it. So there's like an inch gap around the, between the outside pipe and the inside pipe. And that is the fresh air intake. So it's not pulling any air from the inside of the cabin and it's not, it's not emitting anything inside the cabin. So it's not burning up your oxygen or anything. So do no. you have like a, a, a carbon dioxide detector? No, nah, man, that's, that's, <laughs> for, that's for sissies, man. That's for millennials and shit. No, I'm just kidding. I do. I do have one in there. You it got was, a monoxide detector in there. I do. I do. Yeah. Um, it was funny the first night, you know, cause it was, I, I I basically put the finishing touches on it right before we left for Missouri. So it was like, I didn't even get to do like a, you know, drive 20 minutes from my house and set up somewhere and just camp in it overnight just to make sure things were going to work and stuff like that. It was literally like, I put the last finishing touches on it. It was like the next day I'm like going to Missouri, like don't know if this thing's going to work or not. Like, (laughs) you know, and, uh, I mean, I had tested the solar, so I knew that that had worked. I had tested the heater, so I knew that that had worked, but it was like, you know, I didn't know, like, this is carbon monoxide like thing work or not like i don't know like you know so the first night we're sleeping and I, we're going to bed like me zach and chad and i'm like hey hope we all wake up in the morning man i was like oh no <laughs> yes 
Yeah, you know that's the kind of stuff that would keep me up. Like I would literally wake up in the middle of the night and be like, "Okay, I'm awake. Everybody else good? What's going on?" Yeah, no, I'm gonna I'd be honest. A lot of I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep real well that first night. You know what yeah. I mean? I I woke up like twice in the middle of the night, going, <gasps> you know, and I'm like <laughs> looking around, and I'm like, and I made just enough noise purposefully to make sure the other guys heard me so they would roll over or something give me like a sign of life you know <laughs> and I was like all right we're good and after the first night I was like all right we're solid you know and then I also realized like it's not airtight and I did that purposefully like I didn't insulate it to the hilt where it doesn't have any airflow you know it just didn't make sense I wasn't going to spend that much time on it's a hunting rig I need to stay dry I need to stay warm and out of the weather and then right. I need to be able to do some work from it if I have to um so you know it's not completely airtight. I did put a window in the door. I cut a window in the door too. And so I usually always keep that cracked anyway, just for nothing else other than just like fresh air, like right. coming through, coming through or whatever. Um, as far as like, I mean, I did after like staying living in it for a little over two weeks, there are just like a few minor things that I want to do to it that I think I need to tweak. Um, that, excuse me, that heater is, uh, more than enough. <laughs> um, it, it, because I'm up off the ground, the guys that sleep on the floor, like in the hammock or on a pad, like they're comfy, but I'm like bacon up in that. <laughs> does it have like he- a thermostat or anything on it or no? Dude, I, it does, but I've never, I didn't want to look at it. Cause I was just like, I put it this way. I was laying in my bed and like, I could feel my face just like turning red. It was so oh. warm, warm in my bed, like a couple nights, you know, that's too hot. Um, yeah. So I need to put a, I need to cut a vent in like up behind my head, like where I sleep just so I get across like a crosswind from the window and the door and then on the adjacent corner or not the adjacent, but the, on the far corner, the opposite corner, back corner of the window will be where my head is and where the vent is. So I get like that air pull through. Right. So I need to, I need to put that in. Um, and it'll just help me regulate like the guys won't, whoever's sleeping on the floor, it won't really affect them at all. It will just help keep like the area that I'm sleeping in just a little bit cooler. Um, so everyone's kind of comfortable. Um, and that was really like the only thing, man, like there wasn't anything crazy. Like the solar worked like a charm. I got plenty of solar, so I'm not doing anything with that. Uh, the eating situation, I might like a lot of times I pre-make everything, uh, before I leave on a hunt and I just freeze it all and I throw it in a cooler and then I, and I heat it up. Um, what I realized was, was just like with like being in that confined of a space, it's hard to like cook, like legit cook, even with like a small, (laughs) even with a small like propane burner in a pot, like, you know what I mean? I'm like, you know what? It's just going to be more, it's just going to be easier and quicker. And I, and I don't want to be cleaning stuff up at the end of the night after I hunt. I really just want to eat and go to bed, you know? Cause when I go out on these trips, man, I don't know. Some guys like to go out and it's like hunting camp for them and they like to party it up a little bit, but I don't, I don't drink like the whole trip. Like yeah. I'm, I'm up, you know, at the crack of dawn, well earlier than that, but I'm, I'm up early and I'm in bed by like nine o'clock. You know, yeah, it's and, perfect. You know, you gotta, it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a drain though. I mean, yeah, I, I understand it. How much you tax yourself and stuff. That's, I don't know how some guys will go to deer camp and party it up until, you know, two in the morning and then get up at four 30 and get out and go. But that's not me either. Yeah. yeah. There were some of these places too in Missouri where we were having to boat in and stuff like that. So it was a little extra time. So it's like up at three in the boat by like, Yep. 345 you know what i mean hitting land at four you know what i mean so it's like that sounds even better though because i'm gonna during my rutcation i was up at like two sometimes 230 every morning because i was boating in doing the same thing so it was like mm-hmm. hit the boat launch and then my hunting buddy 
had some stuff come up with work and couldn't couldn't make it so it was like i was all by myself taking the canoe off all by myself putting on the outboard all by my, and just doing it in and paddling in and I'm, it, at the end of the week i was trashing i was like man it sure would have been nice to have you know an extra set of hands doing all that but right. i totally get that so i gotta ask you though the cell booster sure but before we get to that the batteries how many batteries does that actually take then or, or is that for the power for your trailer is it like three batteries for your your power supply or four oh, the power or, supply no yeah. it's actually i bought it all in one uh it's called a blue eddy it's 1500 watt hour solar generator and it's all kind of like it, it comes as one unit so it is the the power like the mpt converter inverter and batteries all kind of in one i okay. did look at i did look at building a pieced out system um but like after i kind of looked at it and started pricing it out again it goes back to the whole idea like i built this with the intent of like i want to hunt and not fix stuff and i didn't get into bow hunting and travel bow hunting to become an electrician <laughs> right you know so i didn't have an interest really i'm not sure i say that i don't have an interest i do have an interest in how like the solar stuff works but for this particular application you know i wanted something that was going to be modular um that wasn't that i could kind of take in you know put in take out or whatever everything i have on this thing is completely um removable and i built it that way that way if i ever decide to build something that's a little bit bigger or whatever i can basically pull all the components out that i like and 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 reuse them you know, like the heater for example the solar panels are i had a a system the way i fix if you know adhere them to the roof to where it's like when I'm not using them, I take them off. They're 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 flexible solar panels. They're made by um, SunPower, is who I, is the brand that I used. Um, and uh, I actually put down a piece of corrugated plastic, or yeah, corrugated plastic, and cut it the same size as the panels. And then I actually used VHB tape and a turnabond and made like metal brackets. And then I basically just bolt the solar panels down onto that um, corrugated plastic to keep water from collecting underneath of it. And then I can actually unbolt it off and take them off when I'm not using it because I didn't want them getting beat up by the winter weather, or just sun and stuff like that because they do degrade over time. You know, you start to lose a significant amount of their energy, their efficiency, the longer they stay in the elements. And so I really wanted, and they're not cheap. I mean, I think the two, the 170 watt one was, I, I want to say close to $400 and the 110 watt one was like 200, you know, and so they're not super cheap and so i didn't want to be having to replace them like every three years because they start to like not be efficient and so i was like i need to make this to where i can take thing take them off so i can preserve them so they can last for five six maybe seven seven years um and so i built them a, a specific way to, that i could do that and then the downwind edge i actually just took a piece of flat um it's basically just like stripping between like carpet and like hardwood floor aluminum you know stripping mm -hmm. pounded it flat and then vhb taped one side down where I could flip it up, slide the edge of the panel underneath of it, and let that VHB or let that uh, metal um, uh, stripping kind of fall back down onto it, and it acts as a spoiler and a windbreak over top of it, so the wind doesn't get underneath the panel and try to lift it off. So you actually you you leave them on there when you're traveling down the road, then? Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's on there. The antenna's on there for the cell the cell booster. Yeah. The only th I mean, I, what I do is I I do take the solar generator out of the trailer because I, I one thing i might try to build this year is like a box that's like uh almost like a travel case for like a guitar amp or whatever you know what i mean something i can that's like padded and i could stick in there and you know and it can travel in there because it'll just get jostled around too much so i usually take the solar generator out and put it in the back seat of the truck you know in the cab and it rides there and then just 
when I drop when I drop camp, I just pull it out and plug it into the solar panels. Cool. That's that's good. So with that being said, then back to the whole cell cell booster thing. Well, like what what brand? How did you do your research on that? And what did you come to the conclusion and why you why you picked the one you did? Because I've kind yeah. of looked at those in the past for like installing in my truck as like mm-hmm. a signal booster, but I've never kind of figured out what I needed. Yeah, and truthfully, man, I can't remember the name, the brand name of it. I think it's WeBoost, actually. I think is what it is. Um, and that was all my boy Chad, like Chad Sylvester, from. He is uh, very knowledgeable when it comes to all things cell because of Exodus has a cell camera, so he has had to do a lot of research on how cell works and like what frequencies work best and and all those types of things, right? So he really knew about that stuff and he was like, Hey, we should have a, we should get a cell booster. And I was like, yes, we should. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'll let me check into it. So he did a bunch of research and really it came down to this, this company called WeBoost. Um, the, the criteria really was, is that it, it needed to have, you know, of course, good, good ratings of, of, of being effective. And this one was one of the best ones and it's actually used for RVs. So people, you know, traveling in RVs and, and, and living out of RVs and stuff like that are using it. Um, so that was good. The other thing was, too, is that it was actually one that um, they are usually often a lot of them are carrier specific. So this one was a little bit more expensive because it wasn't carrier specific because I have Verizon. He has AT&T. So we had two different carriers or whatever it was, whatever we got had to work for both. Um, And so it cost a little bit more money. So we just made sure to get one that was carrier agnostic. That's that's kind of one of the things I ran into was noticing that a lot of them are carrier specific. And I was kind of like, Mm -hmm. You know, is there one? So that's good to know. I'm gonna check. Yeah, in. We, 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 we boost, boost for it, sure. It, yeah, it's worked great, man. Like, and I, I've used it a couple times. Like, there was a spot, uh, the one state we hunted this year. Um, we weren't at a campground. We were literally parked on the top of a mountain because it was the only spot on this piece that we knew we got one bar. And it just so happened there was an open spot that was there with no trees in the way that we could actually get good sun for the solar panels. And so that's where we ended up camping for like a week. And turn the boost the booster on you know i don't let it run all the time because it runs battery and so i just turn it on when we need it and i think it got me like three bars and so we were it's a place we never have power or like we never have cell service like before we go there we have to download all of our maps because we know when we hit there for like the next week if we want to talk to our families we've got to drive down the road to like this you've got to drive like four miles to this church and then we get cell service yeah that's yeah that's awesome that totally changes the game um i've i've experience that so i know what that's all about for sure mm-hmm. um yeah so one more thing how do you i mean do you always have an easy time finding a spot to park that camper or like some of the public you hunt i mean obviously like a lot of the stuff i hunt or here in illinois anyway like you totally can't camp in the, in the parking lot and mm-hmm. you know that is like a hunter parking area only some of them even have signs that say no camping so mm-hmm. i'm guessing people have actually tried it at some point so um, is the trailer inconspicuous enough to where it's, so I, uh... I usually stay away from those spots. Wink, <laughs> wink. Yep. <laughs> um, no, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to tell any, li- I'm not going to tell any lies on your podcast. Um, <laughs> I specifically built it the way I built it to stealth camp. Yeah. You know, it's not, that's why I don't have any stickers on it. That's why I didn't paint it. That's why I didn't wrap it. That's why. And if I'm parking somewhere, it's like, I try to park with the window pointed away from the traffic. You know, people driving by aren't going to be able to see this, the, the chimney stack because it's so low profile to the to the uh, um, uh, to the roof that you'll never you'll never see it driving by. Um, you'll never see the solar because it's so tight to the roof. Um, 
And so I do, I, I do will and have stealth camp, <laughs> stealth camped, um, in areas, um, you know, where, if it's close to an access place that I, that I, I want to get into, you know, if there's another place, that's just a little further away. It's like, I'll, I'll go in, you know, somewhere right. where, you know, I'm a hundred percent permitted to be. Um, but I look at it like this, man. It's like, if there ain't a bunch of people there and I'm not ruining anyone's good time and I'm not, you know, then I'm not too, not too worried about it. Um, if there's a bunch of people using the, using a parking space or a parking lot or whatever, it's like, I'm not going to be a jerk and, you know, take up a bunch of space. You know, it's like, I'll, yeah. I'll move along and find somewhere else. But look, I ain't, uh, I ain't shy to just stop along the road either and just find a good, you. find a good berm. It's got enough space for me to get off the side of the road. Cause I mean, this year we're going to Kansas. Um, some of those back roads, those gravel roads and stuff like that, you know, it's like, there's not always a camping spot <laughs> there, you know? So it might just be a place that like people don't drive by a lot that I have enough room to pull off that we can stay out of traffic's way. And, you know, um, no sign, you know, hear no evil, see no evil type of thing, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, that was really the intent behind it was to stealth camp, you know, in, in places and not, I'm look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a, a, a bandit or anything like that. It's not, that's not the intent. And if something clearly says like, Hey jerk, don't park your camper here. I'm not right. going to, I'm not going <laughs> to do it, you know? Um, but if it's questionable and there's not any clear marketing that says that I can't, th- then I'll yeah. give it a go. Yeah. You I know, hear you. So <laughs> totally. Until, until, until someone tells me otherwise, you know, it's like, if they say, Hey, you got to leave. I'll be like, all right, cool. I'll leave. Yep. You know, but no, I get it. <laughs> so yeah. with that being said, man, thanks so much for coming on and sharing and, uh, and, uh, telling us all about your camper. Cause I was super curious and I'm glad I got a lot of the questions that I had answered and talking about deer too. But before we go, can you tell everybody where they can find you, your podcast, all that cool stuff? Sure, man. Uh, truth in the stand deer hunting podcast is the name of the podcast. It's everywhere you can find podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, <laughs> you know, all those, all the normal places. Um, I've been doing a little bit more on YouTube, you know, I'm a working guy like everybody else, you know, so it's my, I have a day job. So, you know, I dedicate as much time as I can to the, um, the passion of chasing whitetails. And so, you know, I don't get out as many videos as I would like, but you know, usually probably one, two a month I end up putting out and it's everything from saddle hunting kind of tips, tricks, stuff like that. DIY builds of things, all the stuff that I talked about with the trailer. Um, the full build is on there. I think there's four videos related to the build and then like the kind of the, the aftermath of it kind of a lot of the stuff you and I talked about, I kind of go through piece by piece of what I used and what I might change. So that's all on the YouTube channel. And that's just truth from the stand on YouTube. Um, Two other things that I have going on, you know, uh, you follow me at truth from the stand on Instagram, you know, I'm obviously there. And then if you go to the link in the bio, there's some merch and stuff like that in there. Truth from stand.com. You can check that out. The podcast is there as well. Merch is there too. And then also the other little known fact is I own a coffee company called uh, skull brew coffee company. Um, my, my wife and I own it and run it. We got some merch there. We've got killer coffee. It's all single origin kind of premium coffee. I don't, my saying is, is life's too short for shitty coffee. So I like to have <laughs> coffee. Um, and then we also have kind of travel pour over coffee as well. So I use that when I travel, um, you know, it's single packs and stuff like that to where you can take back country on out of state hunts like this. Or if you're just going away for a weekend camping trip or, or if your in-laws drink shitty coffee and you want good coffee, you can just take this with you easy. It travels, it travels light and travels, travels <laughs> nice. So that's skullbrewcoffee.com. You can check that out. And we donate 10% of our, our profits to, uh, nonprofit conservation organizations. So that's a, a passion project of ours. So that's me, man. A lot of irons in the fire, brother. I too, sir, am a coffee snob. <laughs> so that sounds like I got to get you some <laughs> in the mail then, homie. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. You have a good night. You too, man. Thanks for having me. 
And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.